Hey, ebook readers, right now, the Flight Attendant Joe series ebooks are only $2.99. That's Fasten Your Seatbelts and Eat Your Fucking Nuts, Flight Attendant Joe, and I'm Just Here for the Layovers on Amazon, iTunes, Nook, and Kobo, $2.99 each. Hey, everybody, if you enjoy listening to Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe, now is your chance to become a patron of the podcast. Go check out www.patreon.com slash grounded with flight attendant Joe. There's different tiered levels and each of one of them comes with something special and unique, including the Friday debrief, which is a short podcast episode that I record on Friday mornings, just me and my coffee. And it's only available on the Patreon page for patrons. So again, check that out. www.patreon.com slash grounded with flight attendant Joe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 44 of the Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe podcast. Let's get started. Crazy today. I'm very excited because I'm recording this right after I finished recording the conversation. So I'm still hyped up. Today on this show, I am thrilled to have author James Suriano on. This guy writes books like I wish I could, Fast and Furious. We're going to talk about his eighth book that came out last year, The Water Crown, and also that he's working on his 10th and his 9th is coming out in like a month. Let me lower this music. It's crazy. Um, First time I've ever had somebody on the show where we were able to dive deep into our Madonna love and we shared some Madonna stories, which if you don't like Madonna, you won't care about. But if you do... Trust me, you're still going to have fun. We also talked about why he got into writing, what it, what drives him to write science fiction fantasy stories and create these worlds and his childhood. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome James Suriano to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome with me author James Serrano to the show. Now, can, do I call you James, Mr. Serrano, or Jamie? No, definitely not, Mr. Soriano. Jamie, Jamie is great. Jamie. Jamie, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks. Great, Joe. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting. It's Oh, well, I'm excited, too, because, you know, I've known you for many years now, and you just push out books like women push out babies. And I really want to (laughs) dive into your entire world of that. But before we even get started, I actually have somebody who called in a question for you. Can you believe that? Okay. All right. Are you no, ready? We haven't even talked yet. Yeah, we, let's go. We are 44 seconds in, and there was a caller. Are you ready to hear the question? And you're going to have to answer it, okay? Okay. Oh, and do me a favor. Tell him you have a uh, you have a question from a caller that's just rung in, and then it's me. <laughs> it's his fucking husband asking him why he cannot turn the exterior lights of our home off. <laughs> Why would I get up at 11 in the morning or the fucking exterior lights on? <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't recognize that voice, it's our famed Garen Wade, who's been on this show twice, and Jamie is his husband. <laughs> so why the fuck don't you turn off the outside lights, Jamie? Because I'm writing. That's, I mean, right- that's the obvious answer, right? You're writing outside? No, I'm right. No, no. The, the, the switch is inside the house, but Garen has this thing about he thinks that if there's a light on, that the, he can see the power bill kind of stacking up. But no, I'm, I'm busy writing. I'm busy doing other things. 
Isn't that interesting? So does he worry a lot about the bills like that normally, or is it just the electric bill that really just fires him up? It's just the like, I think, yeah, I think it's something from his childhood. I don't know if it's living in countries where, you know, the power goes out intermittently or, or what it is, but there's something about lights being on that just drives him insane. That's so fascinating. But yes, and when he said that, I was like, oh God, Garen's just trying to cock block and get on Jamie's episode. At one point <laughs> I just, said to him, would you just like to come on uh, come on with him? Because and he's like, all right, I'm going to let you go now. So it was funny. But all right, now that that's out of the way, can you please let everyone know who you are and what you do regarding your life as a writer? Sure. So Jamie Suriano has, as you know, you already said, um, I live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and uh, I'm married to my husband who doesn't like the lights left on. And I have two children, um, both adopted, one from the Washington, D.C. area and one from South Africa. And I try to write as much as I can, which seems to, as the days go by, get more and more difficult. Uh, but I'm closing in on my 10th book. And um, yeah. It's kind of me in a nutshell. So you're getting ready to um, publish your 10th book. How long has it been since your first book was published? Uh, my first book came out in 2015, in August of 2015, so almost exactly five years ago. Um, and uh, my ninth book is actually not out yet. Uh, oh. It's done, complete, It's uh, but it's not out yet. And then I'm uh, kind of putting the finishing touches on the 10th. So it's... Um, it's, uh, it's been quite a journey over that five years. You know, that's incredible. So the book we're going to talk about um, during this podcast episode at some point is The Water Crown, which came out last year in 2019. So that was your eighth book. Am I correct? Right. You yeah. know, in five years, you're coming out with 10 books. And in five years, in four years, I've struggled to write three books. And I, I've always thought, like, how does Jamie do this? So how has that even come to fruition that you can get that many words out? That's like a millions, almost a million words or more. How can you do that? How does that, how, how have you even been able to do that and raise a family, have a very demanding husband <laughs> and still hold a, a nine to five job? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, I think, your writing, because I've, I've read everything that you've written, is, you know, comedy, so it's super funny. And I, I as you know, I, I kind of tried writing a few comedy pieces, and I just find that so difficult. So I'm, I'm always in awe of, of comics, because I think comedy and horror, you know, kind of the opposite spectrum, ends of the spectrum, are the most difficult, because you're trying to hold your reader in the in a state that that most of us don't exist in for very long. We, you know, we're, we're, la we're, we're happy and we laugh and it's funny, but then you kind of like go back to your normal state or you're scared and then you kind of go back to your normal state. So to hold a reader, you know, through that for the entire novelist, through the entire book, I think is really difficult. Um, whereas I feel like my books are a bit more of this kind of journey that you go on and the story that you live through. Um, so it's, it's certainly a, diff, a, a bit different, I think. But um, for me, it's just consistency. It's it's getting up every day and writing, or finding that time during the day every day and writing. And um, and that that for me, 
is kind of the way that you get the most words out that if you do something every day, you hopefully end up with a product uh, at the end of the year, at the end of you know, some time period. When you mentioned um, you've dabbled in to, and yes, and you're a fantasy science fiction writer, but you have dabbled in funny comedy with the book Revenge and Regret. Am I correct? Yeah. Which, yeah. I, which I've read, which is about a gay guy dealing with a dysfunctional family. And yeah. I want to know how much of that is actually truth masked with the idea of I'm going to write this function, function book. <laughs> I've had no alcohol. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, how do I take something like that, which when I was reading it, it sounded like a nonfiction type memoir idea um, and make it into fiction. Is there any truth in that? There's a lot of truth, but it's not my truth. Oh, okay. Um, I, won't, I won't mention uh, my friends that um, I was sitting at breakfast with one day and he was telling me a story about his mother. And it was just, the, the story was just insane. And I thought, oh my gosh, it, it, it's insane. And it's kind of heartbreaking that you grew up in that, but it's also hilarious. Um, and I started taking notes in my head um, as he was talking. And then I embellished it quite a bit um, and wove it into that story. And, and that's, that's kind of how a lot of my stories get started is I see something or I'm talking to someone and there's this nugget of, you know, a novel idea or an original idea or something I'd never thought of or a perspective I'd never had. And I, I think, oh my gosh, this is like, this is the jumping off point. And, and that's what it was for that. And I mean, the more he talked, I was just like, you're writing this for me. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Like, I love the idea that you have, you'll hear conversations and there'll be something in there where you're like, oh, I'm going to remember that because that could really blossom into a, an incredible story. But when you were writing this um, about someone else's story, did it give you any like flutters of writing memoirs or writing about your own personal experiences? I don't think so. Um, I don't like to. I'm not somebody who really likes to talk too much about kind of me um, in the sense of, you know, my experience through life. Um, I, I'm far more interested in, you know, maybe talking about you know, my books or talking about how an idea and, and a perspective on that idea. Um, so I don't, I don't think I'm the person that would ever write a memoir. Um, and, uh, and I'm always looking forward to uh, so what's happened in the past to me is far less interesting um, than uh, what, you know, what the future is going to bring. I think that's far more exciting because it's, it's unknown. And, um, and and so I'm always kind of pointed in that direction. But you must do that, too. Right. I mean, funny things that, you know, maybe aren't funny. They're 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 mundane to the rest of us who don't have that comic mind like you do. But. Um, you must see things. Well, I hear it in your comedy, right? And you, you take these things and you just like flip them around, and suddenly they're they're really amusing. Um, so, are you always listening? Oh, I'm so nosy. I'm always e I'm always yeah. eavesdropping. I'm always listening. But what I'm listening for is stories that 
like, or people's experiences that would be able to relate to mine because, um, and you're right. I've, I, I come from so much pain and anguish and chaos as a child. The only way you can really get out of that as an, and be a, a normal functioning human being is making fun of the things that hurt the most mm. because then you own them. It's kind of like when black people, took on the word, the N word, you know, back in the day, it was yeah. said all the time by the racist white people. And then the black rappers and black people kind of owned. they took it back and they said, no, this is our word and we're going to own it. I kind of feel like that with my past. I, you know, or even the word queer or faggot or anything like that. It's like these things that used to really upset me when I was a child. Um, cause my parents would say it, I have to make fun of these things now because then I own it and I'm, I'm not letting it control me. So that's, that's yeah, how I would answer that question. It into your own story. Right. Yeah. But when you, <laughs> when you were just talking about how you don't look to look in the past, you like to look in the future and you don't really like to dwell on it. In my mind, I was like, Oh, he doesn't want to talk about the past and he's talking to the wrong <laughs> bitch. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll open up for you. Joe. Thank you. So, oh, well, you know what? That's not the only time I've ever heard that, but <laughs> Oh God, I am, I'm a terrible person. I'm sure your father-in-law is listening to this and he's probably so used to me by now that that's not even enough, um, in a bothering him. But I wanted to ask you because, you know, you wrote this story, revenge and regret that you took from someone else. I wanted to ask you, I wanted to go back to when you were younger, you know, you're, you're married to a man. So obviously you're gay. What was it like growing up as a teenager in your home. Um, where, where are you from again? A small town um, outside of Albany, New York called Rotterdam. Okay. So what was it like for you growing up as a, a young gay teenager? And I want to ask that because I've spoken to Garen and I've gotten, I've gotten so much, I know everything about that man. I could write his book now, but I wanted to see that you're, you know, you're both raising, <laughs> you know, non-white children. And I wanted to see how you're both, how your backgrounds have been able to establish how you're raising your children. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so Garen and my background could not be more different. Um, I grew up in a, um, it felt like a hundred percent white, um, kind of Italian uh, town. And, um, despite the name Rotterdam, um, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, my, my mother was, you know, just, and still is to this day, just wonderful and supportive and loving and, you know, everything, everything you'd want a mother to be. That was my mother and still is. And she's, you know, and I see it even in kind of in spades with the way that she, uh, interacts with my, uh, my children now. I mean, she's just kind of the perfect grandmother. Um, and in my family overall was was supportive, but um, I mean there was I mean racism I don't think was talked about, <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was there, and um, I mean it was kind of threaded through uh, the family bloodline and in kind of all of, all around you, uh, even in the. Um, sense that there there was no representation or there was no voice given to uh, any minority 
um, there was just a, a kind of a stereotype put on top of them, and, and that's who those people, and I heard that phrase a lot, were. Um, and I, and at such an early age, I remember being curious about those people. Um, what, you know, what is, what, why don't we talk with them? Why, why aren't they part of our, our family, our, our schools, our communities? Um, and I, I really wanted to know, and I think the, much of my, um, interest in reading and, and why I read so much as a child was trying to figure out, um, what, what does the rest of the world look like? It can't all look like where I'm standing right now. Um, and, and what is so different about all of these groups of people and why do, you know, all, all of the things that we, you know, that I now understand are just illusions of separation. But at that time, they, were, they weren't illusions to me. They felt very, very real because that's what my family uh, put up. And, um, and, and that was, you know, that was kind of a driving force behind, uh, behind my curiosity. How it informs uh, my kids today, I, I feel so far away from that childhood now. Um, I remember parts of it. Um, I, I remember parts of it very fondly and parts of it not so fondly. Um, but I, I try to just take the lessons of how I felt and the, the voices that I heard at that time and make sure that I'm projecting uh, the best voice I know how towards my kids um, so that when they grow up and they think back to their childhood and they're kind of out in the world that they're they're there in the world and they're present with um, a history that supports them and pushes them and isn't something that has to be overcome but something that can be enhanced um, so I don't know if I'm succeeding at that I don't think any parent really knows you do the best that you know how um, but that's, uh, what I'm trying to do. Well, that's wonderful. Now you mentioned, you mentioned your mom, um, is your dad in yeah. your life and in the life of your children? He's not. Uh, okay. so my dad is alive and well, um, and he was part of my childhood. Uh, my parents separated when I was about 10 years old. Um, he, my father's a, um, fundamentalist Southern Baptist. Um, so you can see how there might be some, some friction. Um, maybe just and, a little, um, just a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, and, uh, the, the, the kind of irony of my father is he's this really nice guy. If you, if you met him, you know, on the street and you were talking with him or, you know, even if you're, you're related to him, he's this very pleasant person, uh, to be around. Uh, but he also has a, uh, streak of certainty about the things that he believes that I find um, unhelpful and distasteful to be around. So mm, okay. uh, I personally don't want to expose myself to it, and I certainly don't want to expose my children to it. Um, so no, I haven't talked to him in, in about 10 years. Uh, oh, so your mom has met her grandchildren, I suppose, but your father has not. Has not, correct. Yep. Does he know you have kids? He does. Yeah, I have a sister, and okay. uh, my sister's also. Yeah, my sister's also. Uh, my she's uh, quite close with my dad. 
So she's the information conduit, I would say, between us. So when you say a fundamentalist Baptist, did you say preacher or just fundamental Baptist? Oh, yeah. Okay, Uh, so he's he's just really into his religion. Because when I hear the word fundamental, I think like, I personally think crazy. (laughs) Well, that's what I was getting to. And the irony is that um, he's not crazy like, you know, you kind of see on TV. Um, you know, like the, I heard when you were talking with Darren, like the Westboro Baptist Church, like not that sense. But when you start digging into the ideas um, that, uh, you know, fill out his his architecture and his brain, you, you start realizing, oh, my gosh, like we're in trouble here. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of crazy there. Let me ask you this, and then we'll move from this subject. I was just curious about where you started and how that would incorporate into how you became a writer. But at some point, your children, who are still very young, are going to ask you about your father. Do you know what you're going to say, or have you already had that conversation with your oldest, Mateo? Yeah, actually, um, and I have to give props to Darren for this. He, uh, have you read the... Um, the the bunny the children bunnies book about Mike Pence. No, there's a there's a children's book. Wait a minute, there's a children's book about Mike Pence. That's a oh yeah. is, 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 is the is the bunny like gay or transgender or something? Yeah, he's okay. gay. It's a gay right. bunny. Yeah, he's I a forget gay the, bunny. I forget the title of the book. We have gay bunnies in our um, backyard, so I understand. <laughs> so there's a there's a character in the book. Uh, who's called the stink bug and he's it's pretty much my tense right like very homophobic and all, you know all these things that we uh, um, attribute to him and um and basically saying like you know this the, this gay you know animal shouldn't be with this gay animal and and garen just kind of put it in the terms for mateo about that and said uh, you know that's what jamie's dad is like he's you know he's like the stink bug which which i thought was that <laughs> that is so funny, but it, wait a minute, I shouldn't say it's funny, but it's, it, it made me laugh because it's true, but it's so weird to hear it come out of someone's mouth like that, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, that's, that's kind of as far as we've gotten. Um, I'm sure there'll be more questions. I'm not sure what I'll say <laughs> at that point. Uh, well, uh, it's a hard, it's a hard discussion, right? Because the last thing that you want when you're raising a kid is when, because there's going to be disagreements between parent and child, of course, is you don't want your child to just cut off and say, okay, well, you disagree with me, so I'm not, I'm no longer going to have communication with you. Um, and yet that's exactly what I've done. Um, okay. But there's, you know, there's 18 layers below that, right? Of, you know, leading up to that point. Um, but I, do think when it comes in kind of to the topic of you know who you're who you're in love with and who you're building your your life and your family with that um, you know there isn't room there uh, for negotiation and it's it's, uh, it's really not open to discussion as far as I'm concerned. And and you and Garen come from such different backgrounds, and that's what fascinates me. Like you guys, your stories could not be close. They're so far apart. It's, it's incredible that you guys have been brought together. It reminds me a lot of Matt and I, cause we have such different ideas of the world and 
you guys are raising children. And I always look at you and I always think like, I wonder what it would be like if Matt and I were raising kids because we would be coming from, you know, he would be coming from this, you know, background of having loving parents who really cared for him. And my parents were basically like dumpster divers. So, you know, we would come at it in different ways. And so I've always been, and I'm not going to have a kid just to say, I'm going to do a science project and see what happens. So I like to live vicariously through parents who have different upbringings. um, And I like to pick their brain about how does that work? So my next question is, you know, Garen's from Sri Lanka, you know, your other kids, one's mixed, one's from South South America, no, South Africa. You are the white man out. What is it? How do you feel? What's it feel like when you're at an airport and you're walking through and you look nothing like, at least Garen kind of looks like his kids because they have the same shade of skin, but you're like way out there. How do you feel when you're out in public like that? It's interesting. One, you, with anything, right? When you're in the, the midst of it, you know, because I see, Mateo and Ema and, and Garen every single day. So you, you kind of forget what you look like to an outside observer um, because they're just your family. Um, so that gets lost and, and occasionally you get reminded of it. And it's a bit jarring, I think. Um, funny enough, with Mateo, when Mateo's out with Garen, he'll, he'll get comments that um, Mateo looks like him. And when I'm out with Mateo, I get comments that Mateo looks like me oh. and I don't see it. Um, and I always, I always laugh uh, at that. Certainly um, there, I don't think with Ema there'd be any mistaking that he's not my child. Um, but uh, because he looks so, 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 so South African. Um, but uh, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a bit amusing. Um it really hasn't been a problem, which I, I kind of, uh, I was, you know, I, I sometimes cringe as you, uh, in the beginning, you know, with Mateo and you get some interesting comments, but, uh, you know, I tend to be, um, a bit sharp tongued, uh, when people make comments about race, especially when it's about my family. So, uh, that they tend to quiet up very quickly. Well, you're very tall too. So if anyone says anything stupid, all you have to do is really stand up and then they're probably going to shut down. Um, you know, we don't, we, we, we don't know what our futures are, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, if somebody said, Jamie, you're going to adopt kids, uh, from other cultures, you'd be like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. Were you scared of the idea of, of adopting non-white children or was that not even a thought? No. Um, yeah, 15 years ago, I did not want children. Um, I didn't think I would ever have kids. So I was in a totally different mind space then. Um, when I decided I want kids, wanted uh, children, um, it kind of triggered a new chapter in my life. And um, part of that was um, finding someone that I thought would be um, an excellent father. So, and, um, you know, when Garen and I, I think it was our second date or our third date, um, we talked about kids. I wanted to know where he was on kids. That was super important to me. Um, not, yeah, I, race for me, while it was a, a big deal growing up, um, and, 
that at that time when we were adopting, I, I really wasn't thinking about it. Um, when we, when you get you get asked the question when you're adopting kids, uh, what what race do you want? As if you're kind of shopping for the color of your next car. And Garen and I were both 100% open, um, but some parents aren't. Some parents want children that could. Uh, you know, maybe pass for for their kids, um, which is fine. Everyone's entitled to their own kind of thought about that. If you're adopting a child, I, I wouldn't discredit anyone who's adopting a kid because I think it's such a uh, such a desperate need that exists in the world. Um, but uh, I've been more conscious of it now uh, in as Mateo gets older and thinking about okay, you know little kids are cute and no one, um, you know, no one, no one, no one, uh, sees them as a threat. Uh, but as children, as, um, you know, mixed kids and, and black kids grow up, um, they're perceived differently. And so I feel as though there's a, a responsibility now to educate our kids and how you interact with that type of world. Um, and it's, it's, I'm not, I'm scared for certainly their safety. Um, and it's, it's more, it's, you know, it's more heartbreaking, uh, that we have, that we even have to do this, that we have to, that we live in this world where this is such a real, uh, concern and a real threat, uh, to the, to the, um, to any minority really, especially in America. You know, I've had um, multiple black people on the show. And um, back in the day, back in the day, this podcast is only six months, for God's sake. But way back, (laughs) way back in like February, I had Keisha on. We talked about race and she's raising two sons and she's a black woman. And we had the conversation about the things that parents have Black parents have to teach their children a different message than white parents. Like when I was a kid, it was don't talk to strangers, basically. Like don't talk to strangers. If somebody offers you candy, run. But, you know, black parents have to teach their children, like if you're stopped by the police, keep your hands out of your pockets, say yes, say please, be respectful, look them in the eye, always respect everyone. You know, and here is a situation where there's a white parent who has black kids and you're going to have to tell them those same things because Mm -hmm. we live in a country where you can be you know, head in the sand, think it's fake news. But the reality is there's injustice in the minority community. And you're raising children who are going to grow up in this country. And, you know, do you ever think of those things? And how are you moving forward with that? Yeah, absolutely. No, I I absolutely think of it. And it's been certainly for me in education. um, And it's, it's so helpful. I, I think I would be lost if my husband was white as well. Um, I think it would really take, you know, so, so much more effort um, than it than it already does. But no, I you know I, I try to to read what I can get my hands on um, and experiences and talk with you know talking with other people. Um, but it's yeah, it's, it's I will say it's just it's it's frightening. I mean, that's, uh, that, that's kind of the, the bottom line. And, 
the other thing is for me, my, my personality is such that I'm the person, um, you know, when we lived in Washington, who, when uh, a police officer, you know, cut me off in traffic or something, I'd roll down my window and scream at them, right? And <laughs> that's kind of my personality to immediately confront whatever I see as a, as a, you know, as a problem. And certainly that is not a lesson you can teach um, a black teenager. That's just not, uh, that's just, you can't go there. I mean, there's, and it's, oh, God, no. it's very, it's no, it's, it's the, the complete wrong method. So it's a, it's a reframing of the perspective in my head and putting myself in their, um, in their place and saying, what's the best thing to do uh, whenever you, whenever you go out in public, really, whenever, whenever you, when you, whenever you leave our driveway, this is how you need to act. And this is what you need to do. I'm glad that you brought that up about, excuse me, being a white guy screaming at a cop out of a window because, you know, I know throughout my decades in life, I never really realized how lucky I was to be a white person. And I remember a time I lived in West Florida in Bradenton in Manatee County, which is pretty red, pretty, pretty conservative. I mean, it's West Coast, Florida. And I was leaving work one day. I worked at an urgent care when I was a nurse and I had to shit so bad. It was like, (laughs) it was like, oh yes. It was one of those moments. You know, those moments where you're like, okay, I'm five seconds from shitting my pants. It was that. And I was still like five (laughs) miles from home. So I like, took a hard left and I was cutting through a Kmart parking lot, probably going like a thousand miles an hour. And the police pulled me over. And I, I, you know, it was, the air was on full blast. I was sweating. It was was like I had a turtle in my pants, peekabooing out. I mean, I could barely speak. And he comes up and he, I roll down my window and he's like, before he can even say like, do you know? I said, I have to shit. Oh my God. And he's like, go, so go, like go. TV. He's like, go, what? What was that? I said, this is like TV. I can just picture it. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was banging on the steering wheel, and he's like, do you? I was like, I have to shit. I have to shit so bad I can't stop. And he just said, go. Now, can you imagine if that would have been a black person? That would have never happened. Never he would happened. Have- he would have pulled you out, pulled you out of your car. You would have been arrested with shit in your pants because if I would have stood right. up out of that car, <laughs> the only thing that was keeping me from tears uh, and shit in my pants was that I was sitting down. And you know, at that moment, I didn't think about how lucky I was that I'm a. I was like at the top of my crazy sweating. I looked like I was probably on meth behind a car, but driving a car and he let me go. Cause I screamed, I have to shit. And what, what I never, what it took me. And that's probably, that was like nine, 2002. So 18 years, it's probably taken me about 18 years, 17 years to realize I'm very, I'm very lucky that I'm white because there have been so many opportunities that I've, had that have allowed me not to have bad situations occur with the police. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you, you reckon, and as you look back, right. You, I'm sure you think about there's that situation, which is kind of extreme and super funny, but you know, I'm sure you've had quite a few situations where your skin color is, was an advantage to you. And I certainly can think through my past um, and see that now. Um, but 
you, I, I, to be honest, I mean, they're just, I just did not, you know, when I was a kid, certainly, I just did not have awareness of this. It, it, no one, uh, just no one talked about it or that no one in my circle talked about it. I'm sure plenty of people were talking about it. Um, but it wasn't filtering into, into my family's consciousness. I, um, I have another story for you. You're going to appreciate yeah. this one because it's about your girl, Madonna. So okay. <laughs> imagine, I'm going to take you back to 19, oh God, 1994. And um, before I became a nurse, I was working at a 7-Eleven, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I remember sitting at, the, I, and I was full on Madonna, like sex, the book Sex just came out, erotica was coming, uh, uh, bedtime yeah, stories. <laughs> she had just filmed, she had just came out with sex. Maybe it was 92. She had just came out with sex, the book, and she still owned the house in Miami on Brickell Avenue. I, yes, I know. Where um, okay. she had filmed all the- <laughs> How many times? How many, times, How many times did you visit that house? Oh, the story's coming. I used to live in Fort Lauderdale. Stop it. So um, okay. I was working at a 7-Eleven and I was reading like a Vogue magazine where she was on the cover and some queen walked in to buy whatever. And he's like, do you know she lives in Miami, right? And I was just like, yeah, yeah, of course I do. And he goes, well, her address is three something something Brickell Avenue. And I wrote it down. Well, like a couple weeks later, I'm trashed. This is not a good story, mind you. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't say trash, but I've had, I've probably, I shouldn't be driving, but I'm at a friend's house and I'm like, I know Madonna's address in Miami. And he's like, we should go. So we hopped into my 1983 blue escort, which we called the smoking queen, because every time it got to 50 miles an hour, smoke would bellow out. There were no windshield wipers because on one time on a rainstorm, they flew off and I never replaced them because I was like 22 and I didn't care about anything. And we were getting ready. We were in Kissimmee, Florida, and we were getting ready to get on the turnpike to drive to Miami. And before I even got on the turnpike, I got pulled over. Now, imagine I'm in this car that smokes. There's no windshield wipers. I've, I'm tipsy. My friend's tipsy. The cop comes up. He's like, you know, you have a headlight out. I go to show him my license and I drop it out the window. Then I open the car door and I fall out kind of, but I stop myself with my hand. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, we're driving to Miami to go to Madonna's house. And he said, well, get your taillight fixed. And I drove off. And, and move a lot. Yeah. And we drove to I mean, Miami. And and I ended up having the police called on us because we were trespassing on her backyard and I walked through the wow. house. It was the most amazing experience of my life. But if I would have been black, I would have probably been arrested at the moment. No. Um, what was going on was, was right after Hurricane Andrew. So the all the backyards of where her house were where her house was on the street, you know, um, Sylvester Stallone lived down the street from her. All the houses, backyards were like washed away. So if you drove down to this park, like three houses down and parked, where I used to play basketball after when I moved to Sunrise, um, just in case I saw her, um, all you had to do was walk, walk through the park and just go around this wall and you were in her backyard. So me and my friend, we go in the backyard 
and all of the um, landscapers are outside working and all the windows are open. She was not there. So we're standing there and the pool's drained and I'm just like, holy shit, I, Madonna's been here. Like there's a photo from the sex book where she's holding onto like a boat ramp over water naked. Do you know what I'm talking about? I hope you do because you're like uh -huh. a bigger yeah, fan than course. I am. And that was hanging oh, over the water. It, that thing was hanging over the water. And it was kind of like if you're religious and you go to and you meet Mother like Teresa. Jerusalem. Yeah, it's right. like going it's like going to Mecca. So I'm almost in tears. Well, at that point, we start hearing somebody screaming, hey, hey, stop. Well, my friend, his name was was it Kyle? I think it was Kyle. He was a mess. And um, he took off. The fucker left me. So I'm standing there and I'm like shocked. So the security guards start coming. And I remember them saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the, all the Mexican landscapers were laughing and pointing. And I'm just like, I don't know. I'm in Madonna's backyard. I don't know. And they're like, come with us. We're so they get on the phone. I will never forget this as long as I live. They walk me through the house. Now, there's they nothing. Walk you through they, the, they, there's nothing you want more. It's so big that they don't want to walk around. So they just walk straight through. And like from the foyer to the, it was a weird house. It was, it was kind of long. So the backyard to the front yard did not, it was not a long distance really to walk. So I remember walking through and of course they're all in there painting, they're renovating. She's not there, but we get out to the front. This, this podcast conversation has gone so off topic, but I have to share the story with you because I know you will be the one of the only people who appreciate it. So I get to the front and I'm there with the security guard, two security guards, and he picks up his walkie and he says, we need security at Miss Ciccone's house. I almost fucking died. I almost died when he referred to her as Miss Ciccone. I almost died. I was like, you could bury me under that oak tree and my life is, I am done, right? So then we walk all the way to the front. Um, that was actually longer than walking through the house. And there were all these Boy Scouts and walking by and this gate was closed and they're like, why are you in there? And I'm like, it's Madonna's house. I'm getting arrested. Take my picture. Insane. So the police come. Now my friend Kyle is gone. He's like back at the fucking smoking queen on the other side of the park. Like when I find him, he's like um, skipping rocks on the ocean. And I'm like, dude, I was just in Madonna's house. You suck. So the cops finally come. And I remember the, the, um, the female cop was kind of like, why? Madonna's trash. Why would you come here? And I was just like, you should bite your tongue. So they ended up giving me a ride. They didn't arrest me. The, the security guard was like, we want him arrested for trespassing. And the, the cop was, the male cop was like, listen, she sh Madonna should know that fans are going to try to break into our house and we're not going to arrest him. And where do we, and they're like, we're going to drive. They get me in the car again. If I was black, arrested. So I can remember getting in the car and the cop saying, we're going to drop you off at your car. Do not ever come back to this house. And I was like, no problem. And then fast forward three years later when I lived in sunrise and I would go play basketball three doors down, hoping that I would see her. So I, I did you ever actually see her? Um, okay. So after the, after this, we have to get back on topic, but this is so much fun. I feel like I'm talking about Madonna on my podcast for the first time. Um, no, but one time my friend and I, my friend Todd and I, and this guy, this, this guy he was dating, he dated a lot of people. So I can't remember which one, but, um, I think he was an illegal, but that's way off topic. So, um, 
I remember we were playing basketball one day and we got into Todd's car because it started raining and we um, backed out of the park and we were like, when you backed out, you were kind of like maybe a two doors down from Madonna's house. And when we were backed out, there was a, a Jeep or some type of like SUV behind us. And in the driver's seat was a blonde woman with black sunglasses and a baseball cap. And all I can remember saying before I passed out was, oh my God, it's her, it's her. And then I woke up and we were back in Fort Lauderdale. Oh my gosh. Well, Joe, that if I had known you then, I probably would have taken that trip with you. I have to confess, um, you know, I go to, to London at least once a year, twice a year. And when Madonna uh, was living there, when she had her house with Guy Ritchie, um, I would all, because, I mean, it's, you know, her house is like right up against the sidewalk. And, oh, um, I didn't know that. I used to, oh, I used to always, always, always walk by a few times just hoping that I would catch a glimpse of her or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I actually thought um, you, you would pass but, out uh, and wake up on the sidewalk. Like what just happened? Like, did I see an angel? Exactly, yeah. No, it was just Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I feel you. And, uh, unfortunately now that she's in Lisbon, you know, I don't go to Lisbon, I've never been, uh, so hard to, hard to catch a glimpse. That's one of my places that I've always wanted to, it's on my bucket list and not because she reside there, but because I've always wanted to go to Portugal. When I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, a lot of the kids in my neighborhood were Portuguese. So I had that type of, that's imprinted on my brain, like the Portuguese culture. And so I've always wanted to go because I felt like I grew up around so many Portuguese people. Well, now you have two reasons. Exactly. Your husband's going to listen to this and he's going to be like, of course, those queens are talking about Madonna. <laughs> all right, let's get back. Uh, as much as I love, I could talk about her all day, but let's get back to you because you're the one we're here to talk about. So when did you, when did you start writing and find out, oh, wow, I, this is a passion. I love this. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, since high school, I've kind of written, you know, spent some time writing and, and write short stories, and they're horrible. And um, and you just kind of go in and out of it. I it, it was a bit frustrating because, as you know, writing a book is a, a commitment. And I didn't realize, um, even in, until I, I got to the the end of my first book, which I, I never published. I, I, kind of my, my practice novel, um, that I realized that the feeling that comes at the end when you kind of write that last word and, the, and you kind of compile this, um, it, it's just this high, like I can't even explain. And, and I don't know if you get that too when you uh, finish your book. But oh, yeah. when that happened, the first time that it happened, when I finished that novel, I kind of thought, oh my gosh, I... I'll always do this. Not, I love the experience of, of writing and constructing a story and, and living inside of it. And, um, and when I'm writing, when I'm in the middle of writing a novel, everything that I'm doing throughout the course of my day, that novel is kind of percolating in the back of my head. And uh, it's almost like two separate existences 
and then you have this my real life and then you have the, the, the story that I'm the world of the story that I'm writing at the time and uh, in, in many ways it's a, it's a bit of an escape from kind of especially now with you know the world's just a kind of complete mess um, to get away from that and to go live you know in another place uh, for a little bit of time um, but I, I fell in love with it and that was um, when I finished that first novel that was about 2000 11 2012 so about 10 years ago mm-hmm. um and uh yeah so and i, I mean darren can even tell you on our honeymoon uh in 2012 i was you know in the moments when we had some downtime i was kind of furiously typing away on my laptop <laughs> um huh. getting another story out so well that's how yeah you but i'm just come up with 10 books in five years yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, I mean, it's just there's so many stories that I want to tell now. They just keep building, and um, I can't. I feel like I can't get them out fast enough. I don't have enough time to actually, you know, sit down and, and type them out. It's just uh, that's. I have this. I feel like I'm completely constrained. Um, but the good thing is, I, I never, I never were. I don't understand writers that say they have writer's block. Mm, um, okay. There's, there's never a, a moment when I'm thinking, oh, what should I write? It's always, oh, I've got three books ahead of this one, and uh, it's just a matter of getting to them. So talk, talk me through the process. So do you keep like a journal or a, like a notebook where if something pops in your head, you kind of just will write down as much of it as you can think of and then set it aside? Yeah, sometimes. Um, uh, unfortunately now I can't go to the gym because of COVID, but that was a place, um, I think because it's a, it's, it's not a quiet place, but it's a quiet place in the sense of no one is talking to you and you just have your headphones on and you're kind of in your own world. Um, which doesn't happen so much when you're home with kids um, or, you know, at, at work or whatnot. Um, so I'll jot things down if I have an idea. But what I do notice is that the ideas that are worth writing about are so striking to me when they come that I there's no way I can forget it. And what happens is the idea, if I don't write it or I can't write it because I'm working on another, another project or that they just keep growing and um and it's it's really a wonderful experience that when you finally get to that story to sit down and just kind of pour out all of these ideas that have been you know percolating for the last you know year or two years or however long it's been since you you first thought about it and um i I can tell you uh, the for each of my books, I can kind of you know tell you where I was when I, when the idea kind of popped into my head because it because it is it's that stark it's that it's almost like I need to sit down and think about it for a second it's like okay this is this is a book this is a story. so well you know you just read you a few minutes ago you answered a question that I have written down and I have this question written down I'm going to read it it says does does the science fiction slash fantasy genre of writing help you to escape the reality of the world we live in? And you kind of answer, and that's exactly what you said. Now, 
you know, your worlds that you create, they span from like 1968 in Venezuela to the 21st century where androids are running around. Does it give mm -hmm. you some, t I mean, the span of your inspiration and your creativity and your imagination are incredible, Jamie. I hope you pat yourself on the back of, because I, my brain well, can't even you. wrap around it. But when, you, when you're writing and you're in this world, do, does it give you a little bit of a break of the chaos that's happening right now? Does it give me the, uh, or like relief from the chaos? Yeah. Like, does it, does it allow you, do you sense that, okay, I'm going to work on this book. I'm going to step into the water crown and I'm going to yeah. talk about South yeah. Africa and, and the Moroccan desert. And I'm yeah. going to have a moment where I don't have to think about all this shitty stuff that's happening. Absolutely. It's when I am in full on writing, when I've got my, background music and um you'll appreciate this because you're in the aviation industry my favorite place to write is on an airplane um i love sitting in a seat next to the window kind of away from everybody hopefully i'm in first class <laughs> if i'm lucky <laughs> That's and, nice. um in the sound of the engines um when you're up in the air at cruising altitude so when i write oftentimes um, I go into YouTube and I just pull up like two hours of, en of airplane engine noise. And that's what I, that's what I listen to as I write. And I'm just, I'm just there. I'm up above the clouds and I'm in this story in this world and the characters are so real. And I'm just kind of seeing what they're seeing and being with them. And I, it's, it, I, it's, I have no idea how it happens in my brain, but it is just, I just, I relish it. I relish every time I'm in that, that moment. And that's why I say it's like when I finish that first book, it's, I know that until I die, I will always be writing because it's, um, it's just such a wonderful experience. And of course, you know, unlike, you know, drugs or alcohol, there's no bad side effects to it, right? So you can kind of uh, indulge in it as much as you as you want. Mm. You know, it's writing is. I love that. I can sense, and maybe it's because I'm passionate about writing. When you just said that, I will be writing for the rest of my life. It almost felt like you took those words right from me, because I can't imagine not writing. Like my. Worst fear is losing my sight because I, I'm too old to learn Braille, so I would just be done. Um, and <laughs> like, like um, I just thought about that the other day in the car. I was like, God, I hope I don't go blind ever because if I can't write, I'm never going to learn Braille. I'll get through two A and B and be done. So, but writing, and you might, might um, connect with this, is it's almost like therapy. It's, it's this solo thing that... Only you know you're in this. You're all by yourself. You're not really interacting with other people, and it just it, it lets you escape, like you said, escape from all the bullshit. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And um, you know, and your writing too is, is so different in the sense of your writing. I'm sure you're writing for your podcast, and in your writing for books, and you're writing stand up comedy, and so you're kind of um, vacillating between all of these different 
types of writing. So it's, it's got, it must be, I would imagine for you, like, I only kind of do one, I'm like a one trick pony. Um, you have all these different mediums that you're expressing yourself in. And, um, I don't know, but, I, but I'm guessing, you know, writing the stand up routine is very different than when you sit down and, um, write, you know, I'm only here for the layovers kind of. So, right. Well, I don't know. I mean, are, are you, you feeling you're engaging different parts of your brain when you're doing that? Well, I've retired from doing stand up. I'm too old to, um, to get up on stage at one o'clock in the morning, um, and beg for five minutes of time. Like if I was 20, I would do it. But now I'm just focusing on being able to sit down and do a podcast, which also helps my bad knees. <laughs> but when I'm writing, I, when I'm writing one of my memoirs or a funny story, I try to make myself laugh first. So when I'm writing a story, I'm writing it really for me. So if I'm writing an essay for one of my books, I write down and I write it for me. And then I let my husband read it. And he says, you're going to offend like a hundred million people. So you might not want to put this sentence in there. And I'll say, yeah, but there's 275 other million people. So that's actually not a bad number. <laughs> Just kidding. Right. Right. But, um, no, it's true. Right. Cause you can't worry about offending everyone or, or no. worried about what your reader, you know, you, you create it, you write it. You put it out there, which is the scariest part, because, you know, when, you, when you're solo with the book, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but when you're solo with the book, it's yours, it's safe, you know, you, you love it, and that's okay. Once you publish it, and then it's in other people's hands who could say things like, God, this sucks. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's very painful, but I think it's such a great lesson because I've learned not to take what people say to heart about any of my work. You know, when, when fasten your seatbelts and, um, eat your fucking nuts came out, you know, people were like, you should quit your job as a flight attendant. You're the worst person in the world. And I'm like, why? Cause I tell dick jokes. You people have a problem. Um, but now if they say something, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I can't make everybody happy. Right. No. And you couldn't, and you shouldn't, and you shouldn't try because I mean, you will, you, you naturally find your audience, right. That, that identifies and you're, even though if you don't know who you're writing for, you are writing for somebody. And even if you're writing for yourself, you're the kind of composition or the things that you are interested in or that you find funny or that you find fantastical or whatever that, that is, there is a segment of the population that also feels the same way. Um, so I, I always think about, um, I don't know if you've heard this before, Joan Rivers said her best advice was, um, that if you make 1% of the population laugh, you'll fill stadiums. And, oh, you know, wow. it, I, I just think it's, it's just it's so true, right? I and mean, you can take 99% of the people off and uh, you can still have this, you know, amazing uh, audience that, that gets you and that gets you and that, and that wants to hear uh, what it is and that needs to hear what it is that you have to say. I never knew she said that, but that is the best. Oh my God. That's going to be put. I'm going to write that down and stick it in front of me whenever I'm doing any work, because I do tend to worry about, Oh God, are people going to be upset? Oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Oh, that sounds wrong. But I love how, how you just recreated her words and saying like, if you just target 1%, you'll be fine. 
Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. What is your biggest I mean, fear? Oh, I'm just, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to ask you what your biggest fear is when you have finished a book and you're getting ready to publish it and put it out for the world to read. Uh, that I, that I didn't accomplish what I set out to do with the book. Um, you know, sometimes I'll go back and reread, you know, maybe like a year or two years after I wrote something. And I very much know what I was trying to convey. Um, I very much know what I saw in my mind at the moment that I was writing, you know, a descriptive scene or, or what someone a character was feeling. Um, but I always worried that someone else won't see it. Um, and I think it's one of my uh, weaknesses as a writer in that I um, sometimes over-describe because I'm so worried about that uh, rather than just letting the story go out and let the reader fill in for themselves. You know, maybe when they see a lake, you know, based on their experience, what they think of a lake as is going to be different than mine. And I don't need to describe every last pebble at the lake edge or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I kind of guard against that. But it's um, because I still want uh, the reader to feel what I felt mm-hmm. uh, when I kind of discovered these characters and, and um, you know, spent time with them. Uh, it's uh, so that's, that's that's kind of a, that's what I worry about, certainly. Well, you paint, you know, when you write, you personally, you really paint a very clear picture. Like, it's hard not to say, I'm not here right now. I'm not standing here in the Moroccan desert. I'm not with these people. Um, Do you think, and you're talking about like, I can just write, you know, I I don't have to share every detail about each pebble and how cold the water is. It's a lake. Do you think that you over describe or over, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, do you do you think that in your writing you do too much of a description? I yeah, I'll say I worry about that, and then sometimes my editor comes back to me and she'll say, um, "Can you put a little more description here?" And I'm like, "Really?" Like, <laughs> um, so yes, I I I think I I personally think I do, but then you know you read different. It's, as you go through and read different authors, um, you know, you have an, I love Anne Rice, for example, and her books are just, I mean, they're just completely embellished and, and, and just nuanced. And, you know, you, you know what the different threads of her coat, you know, look like as you're reading through. And some readers love that. They love that. I love that. Um, and, and some people think, okay, let's, let's keep moving here. Like I don't need, you know, a four page description of the wallpaper. Um, and, uh, so it's just, again, it's, it's something I worry about, but also back to our last comment. I think it, you can't worry too much about, uh, what other people think of it because it'll, it'll freeze you up. Um, and you'll, you'll become paralyzed. I think, uh, you just gotta let it flow. And you're, you're right. Because, one person will read a book and say too much description and another person's going to read the book and say 
oh, there's not enough. So you can't not make everyone happy. So you write because you love it and it's your passion and it's your story and fuck what people think. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I'm so, what, what I really wanted to dive into finally after an hour of talking about Madonna and stuff um, <laughs> is your books, you know, they, they span, like I said, they span from Venezuela to South Africa to Morocco to China. Like, it's incredible. Have you visited, let me just put it out there. Have you visited Caracas, Venezuela? I have not, no. Um, but many of the places, I would say, actually, not, I won't say most, but many of the places that I write about, I have been to. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I noticed, and then, you know, you, you're very well traveled as well. The more places you go, I, I find that you start seeing similarities. Um, so uh, if you haven't been, if you've been to Manila in the Philippines, and you've spent some time there, but you've never been to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Um, you can, I've been to both places. You can, if you've been to one of them, you can pretty accurately write about the other because there's a lot of similarities between the two cities. Oh, okay. um, so a lot of times what I do is I, I go online and I do my research. Um, and, you know, I love driving around, you know, in a Google view of, you know, streets to kind of get a sense of what it's like to, you know, walk on the streets in a city or, or someplace. Um, but when, when describing the textures of the city, the smells and the, the way the air feels and the way that the people are, you invent some of that. Um, and, uh, unless it's absolutely critical to the story, um, I think you're okay. I always remind when I get snarky remarks about, this isn't a hundred percent accurate. I always remind people these are fiction books. Oh, that's a good response. Right. These are not textbooks. I, uh, my goal is not to paint a 100% accurate picture of a particular city. My sense is my intent is to kind of get the feel of the city and why that city was important for that story or that feel of that city was important. To that story. Um, yeah, and that makes the, you know uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. How long do you usually spend researching? So, if an idea comes to you, okay, I'm going to write about a ten year old in Caracas, Venezuela, <laughs> and I'm going to write about crime families. How much of time do you spend researching? Um, it it totally varies depending on which uh, book it is. That took me more time. Uh, Truco, uh, the, the book that you're referencing in Venezuela for a couple, you know what I spent tons of time on in that book is the actual card game Truco, uh, which is, yeah, <laughs> is a pretty popular game. Um, and I tried learning it from, uh, you know, learning the, the, the card game um, online and it was just, it's very complicated. I don't know if you've ever heard, played I've Monopoly even, or Bridge or something. Well, I've played Monopoly. Did you say Monopoly? Right. No. Oh, gee, I'm, like, I played Mono I'm very well versed in games, Jamie. I've played Monopoly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Slightly different. No boardwalk or park space. Um, but uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll end up. I'll find myself down these rabbit holes of uh, 
of research that really has very little to do with the actual story. Um, but it's, um, and then, and then, uh, places that I have been to, obviously, uh, you know, it's just kind of digging through my own memory. Um, partially because the stories aren't real, right? These people don't exist. I'm not writing, um, uh, for the most part, I'm not writing historical fiction. Um, so it's, uh, it's a lot of just creation. Yeah. It takes more time. I would say, I don't know. I'd probably spend 40 hours, 50 hours of research. If I'm trying to research, uh, a particular place and, um, and, and, and then customs, customs and traditions. Those are the really tough things to get oh, to understand yeah. if you've never been somewhere because they're so nuanced and they're oftentimes, um, they're oftentimes so attached to the language that if you don't speak the language and you're not there, it's very hard to get a feel for it. It's, um, it's like learning another language and then trying to understand comedy. Comedy is so nuanced. Um, it's very difficult. So I, it, that's a struggle. So you do your best. Now, is there a city have now, have you ever been to South America? I've been to Colombia. Yeah. Colombia. So have I. I've been to Bogota. Um, is there a city when you visited Colombia? Did you pull any of the story that took place in Venezuela and Truco? Did you take any of your experience from being in Colombia to incorporate that into the story? Not really. So I was focusing in, um, you know, kind of in the a couple of things. Uh, the place where uh, Lola lived. Um, and which is a, actually a real place. Um, there's quite a bit of footage on that, so you can uh, kind of watch it. Um, but the, the feeling of kind of that city, um, I think, you know, based on what I did from research, you know, it's kind of this um, tropical-esque, you know, uh, equatorial city. Um, so I pulled the environment uh, from other cities that I've been to, like in Southeast Asia, that share a similar um, is it latitude. I always get latitude and longitude. Oh, please, don't even ask <laughs> me. Up. I barely got out of high school. <laughs> one of those so, lines um, yeah. that means something. I'm looking one at a, I'm actually looking at a globe right now. I probably could figure out the answer. Nope, I don't know. Does it say it on the globe? <laughs> I actually have a globe. Let me see. Let me see. Um, oh my gosh! In the international line, uh, we're exposing the limits. So far. There's the Ecuador, Ecuador, Equator. Um, yeah, it doesn't tell me. My husband is going to be like, yeah. "You're a moron, Joe," and I'll be like, "Exactly." But go ahead. It doesn't say. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I I pulled from the knowledge that that I have, and um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been quite a few places. So I. I get a bunch of different reference points to put in there. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the research part of it. Well, I just looked up and longitude is running lengthwise. So it's going up and down instead of across. Okay. So, so latitude. Then. We've, latitude is all right, going all across. Your all your listeners got a, Hey, a little nugget of information. Listen, this show's just not Madonna stories and getting pulled over by the cops, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. You're going to learn something today. Um, 
Yeah, because and I was so fascinated. I'm so fascinated with your brain and how you come up with these stories. Because I'm like, I don't know if he's been to Venezuela, so I'm definitely going to tap into how do you create this world when you've never been there. But also, it's it's probably the same as creating a world that's 500 years in the future. It's the same thing, kind of. I would think similar. Yeah, I think that you're. I'm really focused on. The beginnings of the story for me are oftentimes the characters, and so I think about where, where can I, where would that character be in time? Like, right, you have this whole timeline of kind of human history and human future available to you to put that character in. So I'm thinking about how can I best tell that story? Like, what will help me? I'm always looking for or, you know, little crutches or little help um, to get the story through. So it's, um, that, that, that is a lot of it um, about where they go uh, in, in, the, in the time. The, the future thing, I, you know, I'm a, kind of a big sci-fi uh, geek and uh, read tons of that when I was a kid. And um, so that fascinates me. I love thinking about the future and, you know, uh, you know how what will what will life look like, and how will it all work, and what will we care about, and what will you know what what will your kind of everyday person care about, and what will the political conflicts be, and you know the, the silly things that we worry about today will be you know stuff that we don't even um, don't even think about in the future uh, because they're they're problem solved or they're they're made super easy. Or they're made, or they're exacerbated, and they're, you know, they're now global global issues. So, I think it's a it's almost a fun thought exercise, um, and it's a to to me uh, from my kind of brain's perspective, it's a lot of work. It's much easier to write about right now uh, because I know because you know it so well, and your reader knows it so well too, right? I mean, it's, I don't have to describe what's driving down the street and. 2020 is like in America, right? Like most people know what that feels like. Right. Um, that's, that's a totally different experience when you're talking about driving down the street on Mars in 2800, right? I mean, that's a, <laughs> a whole different image. Well, and it's, um, it's just this blank canvas because you could do anything. You're going to have like trees that are green. Right. Oh, well, wait a minute. Trees are green. <laughs> or trees that are blue <laughs> or whatnot. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, when, I, when I look at your books... And there's so many of them, you know, in biotics, and I say words wrong, so correct me. In in is it in biotics or in biotics? In biotics, yeah. Okay. In biotics takes place in the 21st century, and it's about androids. So in my mind, when I'm looking at these books, I'm thinking, all right, that's what he envisions the 21st century. Then you go 400 years in the future to dark, your novel dark that takes place in the 25th mm -hmm. century when there's no more borders, there's no more countries really. And, you know, I think, oh, this is what he envisions the world in 500 years. Is is my right. interpretation of how you're writing true? Like, is this what you yeah. kind of envision the world yeah, to be? I think it's a, it's a possibility, right? I mean, that's how I think of it as, you know, there's there, based on what we know now and the things that the events happen that you have no way of predicting. Um, but yeah, I think it's a possibility. I think that the world of dark and the, the sequel to it, Aeon is, 
a possibility. There's nothing in uh, either of the books that is not um, possible. Uh, there's no magic in the books. Um, there's no. It's it's all um, it's all technology that not that we necessarily have today, but that kind of from a, a physics perspective is possible. Um, and uh, so. I, I think that yeah, we we could live, uh, we could live in that future, um, or we could be totally different. I love. Um, I am a sucker. Well, wait a minute. If I stopped the question there, everyone would be like, "Yeah, of course you are." <laughs> I am a sucker for dystopian. Like, there's nothing better than watching the world. Burn. I don't know. I love like The Handmaid's Tale, 1984. And my husband thinks I'm a freak. Like anything that shows the world all <laughs> fucked up, I'm like, I want more. So Dark is one of my favorite books you wrote because it's it has everything that I want. It has, it's the future. It's the world is nothing like it looks now. Um, and But politics still so strong in how everything is done. So bravo on dark. I still love that. I have not read the sequel though. I'm a horrible, horrible host of a podcast, but you write so many fucking books, Jamie. No one can keep up. Nobody can keep up. Like, like I can't read fast enough. Um, I have a question about in God, I'm never going to say it right. Um, why you're, you're like me, you're an indie author. Why did you change the book cover on that? Because the book I have is a completely different cover than the book now. You have the fist or the new cover or the old cover? I'm sorry, I hit my mute button by mistake. I have the old cover with the android, the female android on the cover. But now there's a cover like with an, a fist. Yeah. So I'm curious yeah. of how, why was why did you change that for what reason? Um you know what happens is I'm, I love looking at covers. Like, oh, yeah. uh, there's all of these designers that create these brilliant covers. And I think that as time goes on, they just get better and better and better. And sometimes at the, you know, at the time of the publication of the book, you know, there was kind of one thing available, but then as time goes on, you see this other cover and you're like, wow, that's, that's so, that's so much more tells the, the story. Um, than the old cover. So I, and I, and maybe it's, you know, I stared at that cover for four years or something and I'm tired of it. It's like, you know, you want to get a new, you know, a a new outfit or something. Um, And I, I think that's the really wonderful thing about having creative control of your book is that you're able to do that. Um, You can change, you know, you can change out your covers. You can, if you decide two years on, you really just, really didn't like that one chapter and you want to totally rewrite it, you can do that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just allows you to, you know, to, to continue the creativity on that, that novel, even though it's, it's somewhat done. Um, one of my favorite authors, uh, Hugh Howie, um, uh, do you, do you know who he is? He wrote Wolf. No, um, I, I don't know who he is. He's a sci-fi uh, indie author, and um, he kind of does. He writes his stories in kind of small um, iterations, and so they end up as a novel eventually. But he he'll write like you know forty pages and then publish it, and people 
you know, will read it and then he's working on the next 40 pages. He doesn't wait until he has this complete product. And wow. it's, I, to me, I'm always like, wow, that's, that's such a cool way to go about it because you, first of all, you don't ever know where it's going to end. And then if you start getting uh, reader feedback that, oh, I want the story to keep going or, or people kind of drop off too. I mean, you, you could be like, okay, well, maybe I hit my, the end of the book, the, end of the natural end of the book. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's all different ways. And, and when you don't have, when you don't sell your, your rights to the, to your book, to somebody else, I mean, you can do those things. You can do those really kind of interesting, creative things that the, that the publishing industry hasn't done in the past. Yeah. You, I, um, you know, the idea of having a book deal and, and being on the New York times bestseller, it's kind of like, it's a dream for me, but I also love the idea, like you just said, of being an indie author where I have a thousand percent control of everything. And when you have a publisher behind you, you basically don't have a lot of control. Like you tell a story, you could actually write your own essay for a book in the, or a chapter and they'll say, we don't like this. You need to rewrite it. Yeah. And Absolutely. to me, I start thinking, whoa, now, now it's your book, not my book. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's okay for a lot of people. And let me tell you, if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, we want to buy the Flight Attendant Joe series and change it all for $100,000, I'd be like, here, let me package them up and send them to you. But, <laughs> but, it, but at this moment, you know, I enjoy having that freedom. You know, when I first started writing, I was like, I'm gonna have to get a book deal. I'm gonna have to get a book deal. That only lasted for about a week. When I started listening, um, to other authors who are like, I had to send my manuscript to a thousand publishers and they all rejected it. And I've been sitting on this book for five years and I'm like, Oh, fuck that. No, just, just, you know, publish it yourself. Like I can't imagine that. So I do love like you having control of my artistic expression. No, I, I agree with you. And I, I think there's a maybe a happy medium. I don't know. You know, I think I think we maybe I mean, who doesn't want to be on the New York Times bestseller list, right? I, know, I mean, that's right? wonderful. When you say it, uh, in that, listen. When you advertisement. say when you say it in that deep Jamie voice that you have, it sounds like you just invited me to watch <laughs> Pornhub. So you're you're like, oh, who doesn't want to be on the New York Times bestseller? I'm over here typing in www.pornhub.com. No, dot com. Not dot. Oh my god. Oh jeez. Okay, let's get back to you. I'm oh, sorry. Joe. I'm a mess. This is um, why. This is why this podcast is so successful. Right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, let's let's just quickly bring that thought back to Madonna. Um, oh jeez. And uh, you're seeing this with with Taylor Swift as well. Um, Madonna and, uh, and Oprah always say, I've always said, own your work. Um, and if you look at Madonna's songs, most of them, if it's not all of them, but most of them are, she's the writer and she owns her songs. And, you know, Oprah did the same thing with her show. She bought and owned her own show. And it's so important because if you hit, you know, if you, if you have that book that sells a million copies, you want to own that book. You want right. to own the rights to that book. You don't want a publisher t- 
you know, saying, oh, no, sorry, you can't do that or you can't do this or no, we're selling it to this person and I don't really care what you, you know, same kind of thing. You want to be in control of it. And I think that, you know, there's that, there's that, that, that catalyst that major publishers can be in a sense that they can bring a relatively unknown author into the public consciousness. Um, but then you have to make sure that it's going in your direction and you're not being taken advantage of as a, as an artist. Um, so I think it's important that people hold on to as many rights as they can with all of their work. And, um, because if you do hit, and and the thing I always say is publishers have no idea what is going to hit. If they knew, they wouldn't buy about nine. I think they have like a 95% failure rate with what sells. And they rely on those couple of really big hits, the, you know, the E.L. James or their kind of bread and butter authors like John Grisham and Stephen King, who, you know, they can, you know, write something on a post-it note and it'll sell 2 million copies. My God, I know. It's so, ridiculous. <laughs> um no, I think it's uh, you know it's, it's it's important for authors and to believe in yourself that you know maybe you won't be the next Stephen King, but that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. yeah. You know, um, accomplishment and feeling good about what you create. You know, you don't have to sell a million copies of your book to be successful. The fact that you wrote a fucking book. Is a, The fact that you write one book is a success. So many people don't even write one book. You've written 10. I'm about to write four. So, you know, in my mind, like you were just saying, a published company will say, oh, you're new. Listen, we're going to, we'll give you $10,000 for the rights to your book. And then, okay, yeah, oh my God, that's amazing. Let me sign over all the rights. And then all of a sudden the book sells 10 million copies and you just ended up with $10,000. Right. And now yeah. you have to go blow yeah, up the I'm publishing t- company because that's not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, what I do always, um, wish for though, I will say, and this is, the thing is, it's totally unrealistic, right? Because no one reads, I think for the most part, hard copy books, but just some of these, uh, traditionally published books that come out in hardcover and they have these, gorgeous covers and dust jackets and illustrations inside. And I just think, Oh gosh, I would just love to see that. Right. Um, but that's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a silly, it's a silly whim. Oh, I I'll share my, you, you shared yours and I'll share mine. Um, I just want to walk into a book. I want to walk. I have this dream that I can walk into a bookstore, Barnes and Noble, and my book is, my book is there or one of them is there. All three of them are there. And I can walk in and I can say, Oh my God, that's me. That's, that's like my dream. And that's a very hard dream when you're an indie author, because it's all, you know, online sales. And, you know, I've, I've gotten my book in only one bookstore where I used to live in Sunnyvale, California, because I did a book event there. And I asked the woman, will you carry my book? And she said, um, yeah, I'll, I'll buy one of each. And I was like, all right. 
So she bought, it was when I had two books, um, Fasten Your Seatbelts and then Flight Attendant Joe. And I'm not going to lie, every Friday night, Matt and I would go downtown in our little town of Sunnyvale <laughs> to go have dinner or to have drinks. And I would not, every time we walked by the bookstore, I would have to go in there. No one was buying these books. They were on the bottom shelf in the comedy section, but I knew where the fuck they were. And we would walk by and it got to the point where we would go. And as we were getting close to the bookstore, Matt would say, do you want to go in? And I would be like, why are you even asking? And then he would not even ask. He would be like, are we going in? Yes. And then I would go in, I would look down, I would see the books. I would feel accomplished. And then I would be able to go off and I would do it every time. So I'm right there with you. I understand that desire of, of yeah, when you have something yeah, you want to see now. And then I went in one day and the books were gone and I was like, oh, she sold them on discount. She probably burned them when it was cold. <laughs> cause no, cause she's like, if they sell, I'll order more. And then they were gone. And then she never ordered more. So that story ended wow. on a very bad note, but I want to <laughs> That Madonna conversation <laughs> threw me so off. You're probably like, Garen, he's a lunatic. Garen's going to say, oh, yeah, he's a lunatic. Hello. But I want to jump into The Water Crown, which is your latest book, which came out September. Am I right? 2019? Yeah. Why do I uh -huh. think September? Oh, good. Oh, God. I got something. Right. August or September. Yeah. Oh, good. You so don't right, know. Right around this time. You don't year. know. Yeah, no, I know. Well, you know. I mean, you finish the book, and then it's by the time it goes through – gazillions of rounds of editing and the cover is done and all this it's you're like halfway through your next book right well and, you are um, you are sir right. you're like you're like i think the time the the time i saw you when we did the um outright book festival in washington dc back in august of 2016 uh, you yeah. i think you read from which book did you read from was it in biotic or was it dark dark, dark. dark. okay yeah and I you were like Oh yeah, I'm already working on three new ones. I was like, God, he's making me feel like a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know what I always worry about? People are going to ask me about really specific things within some of my older books. And I think, oh gosh, I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but, you've written so many. That happens to me too. It, Someone will say, you said this joke in your book. And I'll be like, honey... You're going to have to be a little bit more Pacific. You're going to have to be a little more specific than that. I've said a lot of shit, but talking about, but talking about the water crown, it's a, it's a book that it's a story that takes place in South Africa, Morocco throughout like Tel Aviv. Also your characters. Yeah. And it's about a world where water is very scarce. Right. Yeah. How does that, um, how do you come up with that idea? Can you walk me through how this book came to fruition? Sure. Um, so the the water, I you know, the water piece of it um, certainly is kind of a bit of looking into the future, and um, I think that's the next um, problem we have. You know, water is a problem in so many fronts of access to fresh water, and you know, the place where I live right now, you know, every projection shows Florida underwater in the next 50 to 75 years. Um, so we're kind of grappling with this, um, this, uh, natural force that we, we need, but we also, you know, need to stay away from, you know, we can't live underneath it. Um, but the, uh, the story of the, of the water crown is, um, really about Zion, the, the young boy in the story. And I was writing it 
as I was thinking a lot about, uh, we hadn't yet got a manual. Um, we were in the process of the adoption from him. And, um, you know, of course, uh, Mateo was about five years old at the time. And I was thinking about um, what is what is not only the world look like that these kids are growing up in, um, that water world, but also what are the, how do, what, what do I want to convey or what does that, um, uh, that relationship between father and son look like um, as they encounter the challenges of the world that they live in? A bit back to the what we were talking about before about race. Um, and then, you know, you have to spice it up a little bit. You have to put in some, some action and adventure and exotic places and that, that type of thing. So that always gets thrown in there too. And I have this kind of... Uh, specialized kind of uh, interest in royalty so that that kind of makes its way into the book as well. Um, but uh, it, what I found was, to me, again, this is what I thought. I don't know what other people think when they're reading it, but the stories of Zion when he's remembering uh, what his father told him are stories that, um, and what his father was trying to teach him um, as he, you know, as he was growing up and then, um, I won't say what happens to him, but why it's so important that that voice that lives within Zion's head, his father's voice, um, why that was so important. Um, and then the, uh, the kind of the second element of the book that I was a bit fascinated with uh, is, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like you, you kind of go through life and you have these little sprinklings of encounters that at the time you're not sure what's happening, but they're pulling you towards an event or a person or uh, a place. And um, the in the book, you have Jade, who's literally on kind of the other side of the world, um, connected to Zion, and they're getting pulled together. And she has her own story, which is so different than his. Um, but they have this connection uh, that's important, certainly to them, and important to kind of the world of the story. And I was I was trying to do all that as well as I, I've always been fascinated with religion and how it informs people. And so I, I kind of made up a religion um, in the book um, that was not overly zealous, but kind of near and dear to the the traditions and the um, uh, of the of Zion and, and his in his uh, his Bedouin uh, family and uh, and relatives. So it was is by far my my favorite book. Um, I I felt like when I got to the end of it that it, I read it and I reread it and thought, oh my gosh, this is. You know, they always say, write the book you want to read. Mm-hmm. You hear that all the time, I think. Yes. Um, I read it and I thought, wow, if I, if I had not written this, I would have been completely enchanted with it um, if I if another author had written it. And that's when I, I felt like, oh, this was, I did what I was trying to do here. And um, I just, I, I just, I don't, I don't know if I can ever do that again. Um, I kind of feel like that, and, and maybe I will, but I, I really feel like that was a, uh, a kind of a one-time event uh, to have that that sort of uh, all the pieces kind of 
fit together like they did in that book. I um I'm I'm holding the book in my hand right now. And remember okay. a, a few minutes ago you said maybe not a few minutes ago, but you were talking about book covers when I asked you why you had yeah. changed in box. So I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I own three of your books. You write so many, I can't keep up, but I own three. I have Inbiotic, <laughs> I have dark and I have the water crown. And when you, when you posted this online, when this book came out, I didn't even read about what it was. I bought it because I was enchanted with the cover. Uh, so it's, yeah, I love the cover. This um, cover will never change. I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, and I was so interested in how you moved it from the African and the European continent, and just these 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 characters you created, and the waterites that these mystical this mystical tribe helping. How do you come up with something like that? Where does that come from? Um, so to me, the waterites. Uh, were are the people that we see now and in, in, any indigenous people who are exploited and um, you know kind of trampled on uh, for the um, benefit of you know big oil companies or are even big you know companies that are building desalination plants or um, you know as we you know mow down forests so people can have, you know, mahogany floors in their houses. Um, you know, all of those uh, people who are really so critical to the functioning of the world, um, but that we uh, kind of dispose of or, or abuse um, as we are kind of marching towards quote-unquote progress. Um, and so that's really what was in my head. And I've seen enough of that. And I think we all do if we look. Um, you see enough of, uh, of that, that it's disturbing. And it's, I, I don't think there, that you can kind of create a realistic world without having that element in it. So Very nice. Um... I lied to you. I own four of your books. I also own Revenge and Regret. <laughs> um, in the book, Zion, 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 right? He he envisions Jade, and he thinks she's a jinn. May I ask what a jinn is? Yeah. So a jinn. So in um, kind of Arabian mythology, jinns are um, like local spirits. Uh, that inhabit places, and uh, sometimes they're friendly, and sometimes they're not. And I, I mean, in the Western world, we might call them ghosts, although they're a bit more focused than a ghost would be. A ghost is kind of something that you don't really, you know, know what their intention is. The jinn might, uh, I guess, the, the most kind of Disney aspect of it is like a genie. Um, okay. You know, if you think about. Uh, I thought of um. I thought of like a Jedi from Star Wars. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's in a, yeah. like a go, in, like in like a, you know how they have the Jedi ghosts and such. I don't know if you're in. Yeah, Star that, Wars. yeah, exactly. No, I am in Star Wars. So, yeah. um, 
I went online before this interview, you know, I do my homework. And so I went online. I was like, I, I want to read, do. I want to read some of these reviews. Now, do you okay. act, <laughs> trust me, <laughs> listen, nobody has had reviews like I've had. I've had people tell me that I'm a piece of shit. So if I can handle that, yeah, I don't get those. No, no. Cause no, no, you wouldn't. I would, because I like to pick on people, but, um, do you read reviews online? Oh yeah, certainly. Okay. I'm always curious what people think. Yeah. Um, so when I was, that's good. That's good. I, I, um, I don't read them as much as I used to. I used to like daily go on Amazon and read my reviews. Now I don't even think I've read reviews for a long time. Um, the podcast now I, I try to get, um, I try to read them without getting too upset, but in this, when I was researching some of the reviews you got, it seemed like people loved the book, but they felt like it was a little po politics heavy. So when you were writing this book, did you, did that, was that something you were thinking like, because of the story has to do with these types of people, I'm going to put politics in it. And do you have to manage that without, so you don't go too far into politics? I, that wasn't the, the kind of purpose of the book, if, if, if there's a purpose to it. Um, I think what happens when I'm writing is having lived in Washington for so long, uh, politics kind of seeps into you because it's everywhere. Um, and when you live in Washington, everyone talks about politics all the time. It's, it, it's exhausting. Oh God. That's um, awful. but you can't, you can't avoid it. Uh, so, um, I think what happens is I, part of my perspective as a person and having lived in Washington for 18 years, um, that's just, that just comes out. Um, and, and it's almost like I can't help myself. <laughs> um, so I do think there's a bit of tempering that needs to, you know, kind of go, go into that. But in, you said you read dark, dark has, you know, it's, it's kind of all politics. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, a, there's a piece of that. And some people, you know, love that. And I think some people think like, okay, just tell like a good fantasy story. Like we don't really need to know about, you know, this person, uh, you know, angling to get this political thing through. And so again, I think it's just part of who I am. And uh, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't necessarily want to erase that. I will say living in Florida, um, there's a, you lived here, there's a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of, a, it feels like an intellectual vacuum, uh, certainly around politics. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a broad generalization for a, a state with this many people, but uh, it's the intellectual climate here is quite different than Washington, D.C., I'll say. And so it's been, it's been nice to get away from that for a while. Um, but I do kind of, I, I don't like when I ask somebody about something political and, you know, they don't know, you know, who our vice president is or something like that. You're just like, Oh my God, if somebody, really? does, wait a minute, wait a minute. I hope that was just you like just throwing something out there and, and that you actually didn't meet someone who did not know who the vice president was. <clears throat> Uh, okay. Well, I don't want, I don't want to list names, but, um, Oh, so just, me, all you have just to do is say you, yes. Just, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh, that makes There's me sad. There's just a disconnection. Yeah. It's, it's way more important to know, you know, what flag is flying at the beach, 
you know, is it good? Is it a good beach day? Oh yes. Well, that's shame on whoever that was because as bad as Florida education is, you should at least know who the fucking vice president is for God's sake. (laughs) But you know, when I read, when I was reading these reviews, well, first of all, before I say that, let me just go into every great, science fiction slash fantasy slash dystopian future has a is usually tends to have a heavy political story behind it because that's what got you to those places like when i watch the handmaid's tale it's like 75 percent politics it's the reason it's because of politics to tell that story if there was no politics in the story there would be no handmaid's tale and i love that show because it's dystopian um I also get frustrated when people say things like, oh, celebrities shouldn't get involved in politics just because I've had people tell me on the flight attendant Joe page, stick to jokes. And I'm like, well, motherfucker, I pay taxes, so I don't have to stick to anything. <laughs> like when they tell like Madonna or Cher or any celebrities, Taylor Swift, all of them, they're like, just stick to making music. Well, do, unfortunately, they pay taxes and so they can say whatever they want about politics. You pay taxes and you write books. You can say whatever you want about politics. We live in a country where there's a hard, I'm gonna say it. We live in a country with a president who was a reality TV star. So when they say stick, stay out of politics, I can't help but laugh at these people. Because the most of the people, and I don't know if you agree with this, but most of the people that would say stick to politics are usually the right-leaning people. Do you agree? I don't know, but I uh, I think that I I guess part of me thinks when someone goes to see Madonna, for example. I mean, Madonna's just throughout this conversation. Well, it's you um, and I. If she wasn't, I would be disappointed. Right. Um, I'm, I will, uh, I'm talking personally. I'm, I'm there to see her absolutely amazing performance, right? If you know, if you go see you're going to see amazing, I will say the parts of the shows that I think, okay, fine, um, are when she starts talking about politics. And the thing is, Madonna and I agree probably on 99.9% of political issues, right? So I almost don't even need her to say anything because I already know. Oh, and, right. I, and my guess is, okay. my guess is most of the people that go to see Madonna are not, you know, are not my father. Um, right. They're, they're people who, you know, kind of think and, and, and love her and, and love what she does. Now I, that said, that's in kind of the artistic form, right? I do think that when, Madonna or Cher or any other big name gets up in a protest or some other forum where they use their platform to kind of blast out um, information. That's super helpful, right? And I think I, I watched the um, Taylor Swift uh, kind of documentary or, Miss, or whatever uh, Mrs. it was. Americana. Yeah, I watched yeah. that. And talking about her, like when she she kind of stayed out of politics, and then she, during one of the elections in her state, made a statement, and she felt like it had a real impact on the election. And I think that those those types of that's an area that it can be immensely helpful. Um, you know, if you have a hundred million Instagram followers, you have huge influence. Um, so uh, you know, 
that that's kind of my feeling on it. But um, of course, we're all affected by these politics. So, how do you not, how do you not go through the day and not think about it, or how do you not create a piece of art and that informs it in some way? Right? I mean, it's it's going to come out. Just like I said, just from living in, in Washington, it it comes out whether you want it to or not. I will I will agree with you regarding I do agree with you and I'll I'll take my com, my comment about celebrities and alter it a little bit. I agree with you that if I'm spending $500 to go see Madonna, which is normal, right? Um you're like, "Please, I spend 2000, but we're not all you, Jamie. We didn't write 10 books." So <laughs> but you know, I pay for my passion. I've spent your passion is buying Madonna tickets. <laughs> um, you know, the last concert I went to, I spent about $560 for a ticket to see Madonna. And when I'm there, I want to see her perform. And when she does start talking about politics, I agree with you. I'm thinking you're preaching to the choir, honey, because everyone in here is either a woman or a homosexual and maybe like, 0.01% straight guys that are here with their wives. So get to get to voguing. We all know that you don't like Donald Trump. So I get that. Right, and right. I think there is a difference. And you're absolutely right. See what happens when I have smart people on the show. I learn things. And there's a difference between that than when Madonna or Cher or, you know, Amy, um, what's her, oh my God, I'm forgetting her name. Amy Schumer. God, when Amy Schumer gets arrested at a protest, you know, they have a large voice. They're on Instagram where, you know, somebody, somebody who might follow Madonna, who can't afford the tickets, who might be moderate to write, see something and says, oh, you know what? She's right. So I agree with you hundred percent when they're performing tone down the politics. Cause I just want to dance and have two hours of not thinking about that. So yeah, I you know, yeah, exactly. You, you want the escape and, and, this, and the reality is, as, as wonderful as any of those performers are, their brilliance is most likely in what they're doing on that stage. Uh, leave the brilliant political theory to people who have that expertise as well. So if I want to sit down and kind of watch a show because I want to become informed about a certain issue, and I really want to dig into it. Um, great. There's people that, you know, spend their lives researching these things, but you know, they're, you know, Madonna's amazing at performing. I mean, she's in my opinion, the best, right? So that's what I want to see her. I want her, I want to see her brilliant. That's why I'm there. Absolutely. She's the one who has basically paved the way for all, like when you see a concert today in 2020 with lights and videos and fly, like, and these pop stars and they're dancing and they're flying through the air, that's Madonna. You could thank her for that. The Blonde Ambition Tour, 1990. All yeah. right. Yeah. I have one more question that is not about Madonna. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or maybe there will be another Madonna question. You know, you write these fantastic stories that just drive, that just suck people right in. And, Right now in this world, we're living in like a dystopian future. You almost can't write what's going on. The uprise, you know, the injustice, the pandemic, Donald Trump, the election. There's just so much. Do you ever sit back and think, oh my God, I could never write this. But also, does it give you inspiration for future stories? 
Wow, that's a big question, Joe. I've been waiting. <laughs> Listen, you're so brilliant and smart. I've been waiting for you to say that, and you finally did at the end of the interview. So I feel good. Um, I I have a little bit different view of kind of the world, I think, and um, than the other people that I'm talking to, and and why I say that is while I think what we're experiencing right now is um, unsettling and is, you know, kind of has a, a global significance. And we, you know, we have these uh, leaders, not just in our country, but in, in other countries as well, who are, um, you know, not certainly in the best interest of the people uh, in, the, in those countries. I also am not sure, and, you know, probably get a lot of blowback for this, that. There were not other periods in our history when things were not as equally terrible, um, but we just were not covering them um, in the same way that we cover them now. And that your your normal, uh, you're not normal, but your average person um, didn't have access to kind of the nitty gritty details. Um, that, you know, maybe in the 50s and 60s, people would turn on the news at night and watch, you know, their hour of nightly news, and then they forgot about it for the rest of the day. Kind of, thing. Um, You know, certainly we can go back to tumultuous times in our own history, uh, civil war, um, you know, or, you know, slavery, which, I mean, it's just, I mean, to, the, and, and slavery certainly still does exist today, uh, not quite in the same form, but um, equally as horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's kind of all of these horrible things that have happened, and I just think that humanity is a pretty uh, violent and uh, uh, difficult species who doesn't always work in their own best interests. Um, so for the future, when I, certainly when I write future books, Part of it is aspirational um, in that I hope we somehow, as a, as a species, figure out a way to stop tripping ourselves up. And I think one of the things that's very encouraging to me as I look at today is how quickly and how much progress we've made on a vaccine. Um, and it's not here yet, um, but there's a lot of good indicators. And what the world can do when we all put our efforts and our, you know, most brilliant scientists and uh, money and everything else into solving a problem. Um, Think of what we can do um, when this pandemic is over uh, of the other problems that exist. uh, If we were to laser focus our efforts on that, I think, you know, so, when I'm writing about the future, it's it's certainly looking at the present and saying, what do we do that we constantly screw ourselves up? Um, and the and the kind of the human nature and the um, human nature and the the, the kind of human uh, brain's ability to understand the world in which we currently live um, and how, how we get beyond that. Uh, I think it's a uh, no, it's, it's difficult, but I, I try not to get too wrapped up in the, the here and now because, you know, all of this will, will 
we'll move on from it and um and uh things will i do think and uh, you know the progress of the world has been amazing i mean it, and even our, in our own country um you know i sort you know i don't i think for you know myself personally i even 20 years ago i certainly wouldn't be legally married adopting two children um so i mean that is enormous progress right and 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 there's a lot, we're we're nowhere near where we should be, um, but we are. I do think we are making some progress, and and I think my books look to that future where I hope we make a lot more progress. Oh, that's that's a great that's a great way to look at it. Look at the moment right now, and I think that so many people, and you're right, so many people forget our history. Um, and they forget that, yeah, right now is rough, but there was slavery. Like, that's the worst thing that's happened in this country. This is this is not. There was a pandemic in 1918 where so many people died. And I think that we are so focused on the moment, or not even the moment, but just focused on how everything's affecting us right now. And I don't think social media helps that either. Because, you know, when no. I was a kid, um, in the early 80s, I was told, go out and play. Don't come back until daylight. Don't come back until daylight. Jesus Christ. Like, spend the whole night outside. No, no, no. I mean, like, come back at dinner. And I was out all day long. And, you know, today in society, I've had parents say to me, oh, it's more dangerous now. And I'm like, actually, I think crime is down now than it was back then. But what's happening is social media you know, you are, you can find out every bad thing that's happening at any moment right now. So when you see yeah. like there's children being slaughtered all over the place in your mind, Oh my God, this, but it was happening back then. We just didn't know because in our little community, we would just talk about like, it was, it, did, it barely left the town that you lived in. Now, yeah, and I, we still don't know. now I know shit that's happening. Like all over the world. I don't need to know that. I don't need that much information. Um, so I'm glad you brought up that we've gone through so many obstacles in the world. And yeah, this is a trying time right now. But in reality, you know, this, this, injust, this injustice that's happening to black people and minorities, this isn't fucking new. People who are like, oh, this, no, this has been going on for 400 years. 400 years. Right. Like, yeah. Are you now? Yeah. You, you're, and I don't, I don't mean to say this in disrespect, but it's like, it took George Floyd for y'all to wake up. Really? Because all you have to do is spend 15 minutes researching history and you will see how fucked up it's bad. Um, right. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's, and it's in, crazy. In, in the lifetimes of people who are alive today, it's certainly not something that, you know, we can identify with, you know, the, the world that my parents grew up in was uh, horrendously uh, racist and uh, discriminatory to yeah, countless minorities, to women, to gay people. To, I mean, it's a, you know, the United States has a history of extreme oppression of anyone who is not a white male. And I think that, you know, while it is better today than it was 50 years ago, it is 
like I said, it is nowhere near where we used to be. Absolutely. Did you watch, um, did you guys watch the Hulu show Miss America? It's with Kate Blanchard and, um, Sarah Paulson and it's really fantastic. Have you no. watched it? Oh, I recommend no, it. No, we haven't. It ta- it's, okay. a, it's about the Equal Rights Amendment in the late 60s, early 70s, and how they were trying to, the liberals, the cons- you know, the liberal, it was a battle between um, the liberals and the conservatives, and the liberals were like, we need to pass this amendment. It's the Equal Rights Amendment. And there were so many people, women too, which is fascinating to me, fighting against equality for themselves. It would be like if five years ago there were gay people fighting, we, no, no on gay marriage. You'd be like, I don't know what you're taking, but it's more than just a regular edible and you might want to stop. (laughs) Like that is insanity. So I recommend anyone listening, if you have Hulu, watch Miss America. It was, Matt and I were like obsessed with it. We were obsessed with it. Yeah, I think I think that that in the, in a lot of what we see, right, it comes to a, a fundamental um, piece of, of being human that we would almost rather not change things uh, because we're used to uh, a structure, um, even if that means doing something that's not in our own best interest. And we see that played out over and over and over again, right? People people voting against their best interests. Um, and for, for what it, and it's almost incomprehensible, but, crazy. uh, we see, yeah, we see it over and over again and, uh, yeah, exposing that is, is so important. I always, one of, one of my favorite sayings is I don't understand that. I don't understand this. That's, I love to say that. I don't get this. I don't understand. <laughs> and one thing that I will never understand, and I know there's psychology behind it, but I'll never understand, like you just said, people voting against their own benefit. And I think that happened in 2016 when lots of women voted for Donald Trump because their husbands were. So I've talked to women who voted for Donald Trump who said, well, I voted for him because he was going to save jobs and help jobs and my husband needs a job and he needs to keep his job. And I just remember thinking, the brain is so, it's so incredible what we can tell ourselves or convince ourselves to do something that's kind of, because if you're a woman and you voted for Donald Trump, I don't know if you ever watched the news prior to the election, but right. you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you must've, ju- did you just wake up from a coma? And then you woke up at the voters <laughs> registration table? Like, did he, did your husband wheel you in and then you woke you up and said, it's time to vote for Donald Trump. Oh, the guy from the apprentice. Oh, this is going to be fun. <sighs> Jesus. All right. All right. (laughs) Jamie, I've kept you long enough. Um, We've talked about your childhood and about Madonna, which was honestly one of my favorite parts, and about your incredible writing. But before I let you go, I want to play a a round of Let's Get Grounded, where I'll ask you a question. You pick an airline and I'll ask you a question and then you answer it. I might even have two questions for you. All right. Okay. Um, um, no, no, I have to, no, no, my, no, no, oh, I, I have to, I I have to, to name airline. the airlines. Okay, have, you obviously oh, didn't okay. watch the end of, you did not listen to your husband's episode. Okay. So Southwest, JetBlue, Alaska, United, or American Airlines? Okay. Um, I, was, I was going to say Delta, but, but so I'll pick okay. JetBlue from there. 
All right. Well, I actually have Delta on here, but it's it's one of the questions that I don't like. So what we'll do is I haven't redone my questions, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick Delta. We'll do Delta second and I'm going to come up. I have another question I want to ask you. So we'll do JetBlue first. On a flight, you're on a flight from Los Angeles to Sydney. If you could sit next to any famous person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So you're on a long flight. You have the opportunity to sit next to anybody in history that you could talk to, pick their brain. Their, who would it be and why? Um, I'm going to pick someone alive. Uh, I, it, my, my second uh, person that I, you know, the first is Madonna. But I'm not going to pick her because I just, I think it would be super uncomfortable to sit next to her for an entire flight. You would hate her probably when you landed. Probably. It might just completely blow my illusion. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Is uh, Karen Armstrong, uh, who is um, my my favorite writer of uh, religious history. I don't know how well known she is, um, but I've uh, seen her in person in, in D.C., and I've read all of her books. And she is, uh, for anyone kind of interested in psychology or religious history, she is, to me, uh, probably the most brilliant uh, thinker today on that topic. And I mean, I could, I could pepper her with questions probably for longer than that flight, and she would probably hate me by the end of it. But... <laughs> Um, yeah. Oh, that's all. You know what? I knew it was going to be a writer. I just didn't know who I, I was like, if he picks someone who's not a writer, I'm going to just end the call and not even talk. He's going to be like, hello. Hello. All right. Let's do your Delta question. Let's do your Delta question. And I'm just making this up because I want to know personally, what is your favorite Madonna concert? Cause I know you've seen probably most of them. Uh, that I've seen in person or that I've just seen, like I was too young to go to blonde ambition. Okay. Um, um, yeah, no, any, any of you, any that you've seen, cause the blonde okay. ambition tour changed my life. So, um, yeah. So any of that. Uh, and yeah. And so 2012 MDNA, um, not, I love the album. I thought the show was just completely off the hook, but, um, when uh, when we were there, we, I was right up against the stage with Garen, and when Madonna was singing Like a Prayer, she came over and grabbed my hand and looked into my eyes and sang to me. And Joe, I've never... Uh, I would, you, would, you know when you see people pass out at concerts and they're like, oh, that's just some silly like young girl. She's like, you know, her idol. When she let go of my hand, I, I thought I was going to black out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was just absolutely, uh, yeah, it's indescribable. But yeah, so that's why I like that concert. Was Garen like, holy shit? Because I would have probably like started, I would have just like, have you ever washed that hand again? Because that was like eight years ago. Yes, Yes, but it was, uh, and yeah, I, I played over in my head again and again. So MDNA, because she actually fucking touched you. Yes. And held on. And held on. I, yeah, I think Garen said to me at one point, he's like, don't pull her into the audience. You know, he's always giving me stage advice. Um, <laughs> something like that. So. Oh, my God. You know what? If I would have, it's good that I know 
that Madonna touched you at the end of the call. Because if I would have known this at the beginning, this would be a five-hour call because I would have spent these two hours talking about Madonna and then getting into your writing. So I'm glad you we we talked about this at the end of the show. But that is amazing, and that would be why that was my I, – I, I saw that concert too. I thought Vogue was incredible. I um, When I hear a camera flash to this moment, I want a Vogue. So I totally yeah. – I saw her in Boston. It was great. Um, Jamie, you're fantastic. I bet you uh, did not know that two hours would go by so fast. No. Oh, my God. It's been so much fun. Thank you, so Joe. Much fun. You're such a talented interviewer. Oh, you can. You know what? When I hear things like that, it just bones me up. So I appreciate that very much. Please let everyone, I'm not really boned up. I'm just kidding. Please let everyone know, because now I know they want to dive into your books. Let them all know how, where they can find you on social media, where they can buy your books. Yeah. So um, you can go to Amazon. That's where most people buy their books these days. Um, They're available there. They're available Apple books. They're available in Kobo, um, any electronic format they're in. All the books are also in uh, in uh, paperback copies. You can buy them from Amazon. Just type in my name and they'll pop up. Um, then I have uh, my website as well, jamesuriano.com, and uh, Facebook, the jamesuriano.com, but you can link through everything in my, uh, in my website. And I'll have all that information in the description of the podcast episode so people can dive into your world of storytelling because it is incredible. So thank you, sir, so much for coming on the show. And I really appreciate it. When is your next book coming out? When's number nine coming out? Do you know? Should be out in the next month or two. Uh, So it's coming up. It's coming up. I just have to finalize the cover. That's Oh, my favorite part is the cover. I love I know, it's so much fun. It is fun because like, like we Whoa. talked about the cover is so important. That's literally before I even wrote the, read the description of the water crown. I was like, this book covers fucking awesome. I'm going to buy this book. So thank you, sir. Please take care of yourself. Give your husband and your beautiful boys a big hug for me. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. Bye. Bye-bye now. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this week's episode of Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe, please subscribe to the podcast. You'll get alerts when new episodes air. Also check out Flight Attendant Joe on Facebook and Instagram. And if you still haven't had enough of me, (laughs) check out the blog at www.flightattendantjoe.com.